Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I was talking a little too long out there, and I am not quite ready with my microphones, but I'm trying to figure it out. I'm glad you all are here this morning. A quick note, I just want to say again how great it is to have so many of you live. We had a great crowd pre-COVID, and then of course COVID hit, and I was like at my kitchen table for weeks um, doing things, and we never quite got back last year because we were sort of, you know, we weren't quite in the whole let's move on and everyone's okay and we can get vaccines and whatnot. And so I was super excited last week that we, it really did feel like we were kind of back to normal, so to speak. And so those of you joining us online, we'd love to see you in person if you are here in Dallas. And so those of you who are here in person, I do want to encourage you to do this study in community. Oftentimes we think of things like a Bible study as kind of like school. And so we show up and we've done our work, maybe. <laughs> um, and if you know, we learn something, then that's good, good for me. But I want to encourage you to get a friend, get a buddy or two, and actually spend time talking about how this stuff impacts your life. There are quite a few of little groups that I know about that exist here where people will do things like they may go to lunch and talk about this, or they may meet up later and talk about it. And I actually know one group online that calls each other and talks about it. Is that so great? Because yes, information is important. Knowing the kind of stuff that is here in the Bible is important, but only insofar as it actually impacts your life. And so you kind of need a partner or a friend in order to make that worthwhile. And so I hope you will do that. I hope you will take time. If you are coming or listening to this, then obviously you care enough to spend an hour. So maybe you can spend a second hour actually talking about the way that this could, act, could impact your life. And so that's my note of encouragement this morning. Um, and then, you know, apropos to that, silence your cell phones. There you go. That's kind of like making a friend, right? All right, a few just housekeeping bits. stmichael.org slash rbs is where you can see our schedule. If you do not have it yet, we've got bookmarks at all the doors. They have the schedule and what we are doing each day or each Wednesday as we go through this fall semester. I know a few people said to me, are you actually doing all seven chapters? Like, I didn't have time for that. Yes, we're doing all seven chapters. So. Don't worry, you can read later. Um, and so we're going to run through it because we're kind of getting to Saul, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, and a reminder that we are using a commentary written by the same man who wrote the one for Genesis. And so these are available, some are available in the bookshop. We don't have enough for every single person who may want one, but do run by the bookshop here at St. Michael if you need one, or they're available on Amazon. And I believe that Bove has included the name and title and links in the emails that you have received. And if you are not receiving email reminders from Bove, she sends one a week just as a reminder that we are meeting or a reminder if we are not meeting, say the week of Thanksgiving, just so nobody shows up sadly by themselves here in the chapel. We don't like that either. And so if you are not receiving those emails, then please grab her after this class or sign up on the forms that are by the doors. If you are receiving her emails, you're on our list. You no need to sign up again. Let me see. I think that's probably all we need to do except have a prayer. So let's pray. 
Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day, for giving us beautiful weather here in Dallas as we remember our neighbors, friends, family members who are in the path of Hurricane Ian. We ask that you protect them, guide them, keep them safe. Be with all of our friends who cannot be here with us in person today, those who we hold in the silence of our hearts, those who need your healing touch, and those we love and see no longer. Open us up that your spirit can fill us and that in doing so we can be inspired to live as transformed disciples to help build your kingdom on earth. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so as we jump in, a reminder that I really like questions. And so y'all were a little rusty on the questions last week. And so I want to encourage you to bring them and to bring them week to week. If you have questions in between Wednesdays, don't hesitate to email me or to email Bub. And for those of you watching this online, you can add questions and Bub actually checks the comment fields online before the next Wednesday, just in case someone has posted a question. We had a few good ones last week after our Wednesday study and a few that I think would really be apropos to today's study. So first off, let's talk about the scope of today's lesson. Seven chapters of 1 Samuel. Yes, it is okay. We're going to be fine. We are focusing essentially on the transition from the judges to the kings. Samuel is really the person who transitions from the period of the judges to the period of the kings. We've got four sections today. We're going to talk about the general structure of 1st and 2nd Samuel, those two books. We're going to talk about how prophets and kings shift from the period of the judges. Then we're going to talk about Hannah and Eli, and then we're going to talk about Samuel. Those are our four sections today. So before we jump into there, just a few Q&A that I think would be helpful. First off, we had a good question that was totally fundamental. What Bible version does St. Michael use for gospel readings and what do we prefer? And so this is something that we touch on every year. It's a great reminder about the difference between translations and paraphrases. So this is something that I find really helpful. A translation is when someone takes the original language, either Hebrew or Greek, in this case Hebrew, and then translate it, translates it into another language like English. There are plenty of translations throughout history the most recent translations tend to be the most accurate. That does not necessarily mean that they're better, but I do think if we are looking to study, then having the most accurate English translation really is most helpful because we all know there are little turns of phrases, even individual words that can change the meaning of an entire passage. And so trying to get at the best word in English is always helpful. We use the New Revised Standard Version, NRSV. This was done decades ago by a whole host of biblical scholars and is still pretty much considered the standard for the best translation, NRSV. That's what you hear read on Sunday mornings and all the like. That's what the Episcopal Church uses. The other version or the other translation that I will often reference is the NIV, the New International Version. The NIV is not technically as accurate a translation, but what they did is they did a very good translation and they tried to round out a few of the rough language bits. Not every book of the Bible 
is well written. There are some that are just kind of, you know, freshman high school English paper quality. And so what the NIV did is it sort of tried to smooth it just a little and make it a bit easier to understand. NIV is probably, like if you wanted to put a quote on a t-shirt or a coffee mug, you'd probably go to the NIV because it just is a little nicer. But it's not quite as technically accurate as the NRSV. That is translation. Then we've got paraphrases. And lots of people look down on paraphrases. I think that is too judgy. I think paraphrases are wonderfully helpful for us. Somebody is looking for their phone. I know what that sound is. Um, a paraphrase helps us to get at the meaning of a text. What I want to caution you is not to read a paraphrase as if it was a translation. It is not. So something like the classic paraphrase that I use myself is the message. The message is a wonderfully faithful intellectual paraphrase. So sometimes if you're reading a passage and you think, what? is this even saying? Like, what is even happening right now? Then going to a paraphrase can be super helpful because all of the technical hard bits have been stripped out. It has been rephrased, paraphrased, into just common English colloquial style. So starting with a paraphrase to help you get the concept or the context is great. Then you can go back to the translation and not be confused about some of the technical language that the translation's using. Don't stop with a paraphrase, but using a paraphrase can be really helpful. Yes, ma'am. So which version's closest to the original language? I'll have to go to NRSV, the new Revised Standard Version. That's really the closest. Um, that's the one I use for study. If you get a study Bible, the NRSV study Bible, and there are two that pretty much all kind of academically minded seminaries would use. One's the Oxford and the other is the HarperCollins. Um, I think that more and more seminaries are using the HarperCollins nowadays than the Oxford, but it, they're both very good. They have tons of notes. If you were to look at my just, you know, I've got 1 Samuel up here. What you have here at the bottom, like the entire bottom third of almost every page of this study Bible are notes. And so as you go through, there are, I mean, dozens and dozens of footnotes that explain something to do with the text itself. And so if you are interested in really studying and you are a footnote detail kind of person, then go get Oxford or HarperCollins in RSV. That's really the study Bible that will help you the most. If you are more interested in life skills and life lessons, then you probably can't find an NRSV with little bubbles that pop up and give you, you know, food for thought. Um, if you'd really like more of a chicken soup for the soul kind of Bible study, then you're probably gonna have to go with the NIV and it's fine. I mean, people get all up in arms about one translation over the other. It's sort of like saying this one's really good and that one's just almost really good. They're both totally fine. So don't, no worries about that. Any questions about translations? Yes. Hebrew what? So if you've ever seen the phrase Hebrew Bible, um, I touched on that last week in the sense that the books are ordered differently than the Old Testament. Now I say that 
but you might go find a thing called the Hebrew Bible that is still ordered like the Old Testament because some nice Christian person has decided to be PC and use Hebrew Bible in a respectful sense. Um, there are so many different ways that people have packaged the Bible that it's difficult to know exactly what they mean by simply looking at a title. Our Jewish friends have their Bible and their Bible is ordered differently than the Old Testament because for them, their Bible is in a sense complete. For us, the Old Testament is part one. And so like any good, you know, season one, you end on a cliffhanger and then you have to go to season two to get the rest of it. And so essentially, the prophets end the Old Testament for us with the promise of the Messiah, and you turn the page and you get to Matthew. And so the promise fulfilled. That's the way that we have ordered our Bible. Any other questions? All right, so now we've got a couple just kind of cultural bits that I think are helpful because last week we essentially said, okay, Moses died. Moses handed his mantle to Joshua. Joshua took the people into the promised land. Then Joshua died. There was no clear leader to take up the baton. And so we entered the period of the judges. Judges were mostly tribal. They were concerned about defending God and saving the Israelites from whatever problem they got themselves into by being unfaithful. And so the judges were never monolithic leaders like Moses and Joshua were and where we will get to again with David. But the judges still did some good stuff. One question that came out of that discussion of the judges is whether Israel is still tribal today. And if Israelis, Jewish um, people today, have some kind of relationship to their tribal um, heredity. And so I think that's a very interesting question. Essentially, what happens in the exile is that there are 10 tribes in the northern kingdom of Israel. And remember, the northern kingdom of Israel, sorry, let me back up. There are many different ways that we use the word Israel. Israel could be a reference to Joshua. Israel could be a reference to the entire nation. Israel could be a reference to the northern kingdom, not the southern kingdom. So you have to kind of contextualize what you're using the word for, plus there are others, so it's super helpful and convenient. So in the kingdom period, if you imagine that we are going to start talking about Samuel, the first king will be Saul, then David, then Solomon. Those are the three kings of the kingdom period. When Solomon dies, they divide what was a unified kingdom into north and south. The northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. The Assyrians take the 10 tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel into exile. Babylon takes over Assyria. Babylon takes the southern two kingdoms of Judah into exile. That's the capital E exile. And in the Babylonian exile, that essentially are two tribes, Judah and Levi. Modern day Jewish people, like the nation of Israel, they essentially come from the lines of Judah and Levi. So there is no real tribal sensibility 
in Israel anymore. I mean, if anything, the tribal sensibility is like Democrats and Republicans. That's their tribe now, is their political affiliation. It really has nothing to do with the 12 tribes of Israel from the ancient world because about 80% of the people in Israel would likely trace their lineage to the tribe of Judah. The others, Levi. That's about it. But good question. Any follow-up on that? Okay, last question was about polygamy. <laughs> so I think someone read ahead, um, and we, are, we will talk about this as we go into 1 Samuel. Um, but in general, the, the question was, when do, when do the Jews become monogamous? Because it seems very apparent that there's a whole lot of men with multiple wives in the Old Testament. It's really a good question, and we're going to talk about Elkanah in just a moment. Um, essentially, Jews were never, how do I want to say this? Jews never promoted polygamy. It was never the norm. It was always more normal to be monogamous. Post-exile, so when the tribes come back from Babylon, there is a very explicit ideal of monogamous marriage that is set up. Remember that all of this stuff that we have been studying in the Old Testament, those books, the stories themselves, were written or certainly finished either during or just after the exile. So as they were telling these stories, there was a clear sense that the ideal is one man and or the ideal is you've got only one wife. However, we know multiple times there are reasons why a man may take a second or a third or a fourth wife, and it almost always comes down to bearing children. Whenever that happens in the story, and we will see that here with Hannah, there is always some explanation as to why a second wife was necessary. That indicates to scholars that we still have to tell the story of someone having more than one wife, but we're going to try and give a reasonable explanation because we no longer think that having more than one wife should be the ideal for a good Jewish person. Does that kind of make sense? We're going to talk about it a little bit more. There's always a caveat to more than one wife whenever you hear it referenced in the Old Testament, and we'll see that right here in 1 Samuel. All right, so let's jump in. The structure of 1 and 2 Samuel is relatively simple. We are entering a period that is, in a sense, almost like the second climax of the big arc of the story. If you had started reading from Genesis, you can get all the way through 1 and 2 Samuel, and the story essentially makes sense. It is chronological. It builds on itself, with the exception of Ruth kind of slots itself in there, and it's not exactly chronological, but it's not non-chronological. It's just a separate nice little story off to the side. And the reason that Ruth is there is because Ruth is David's great-grandmother. And so you kind of have to slide Ruth in there to give David a bit of validity. But if you, with Ruth as the exception, you could essentially read Genesis all the way through 2 Samuel, and it's one big arc of a story. Obviously, the first big climax of this story is Moses getting the people out of Egypt. That's the big boom, water spread, and you've got all the golden calf and all the good stuff. The second climax of the story comes with David. 
the formation of the kingdom and the unification of Israel under a single king, and that is David. Saul is the first king, but unity comes under David. So 1 Samuel essentially tells the story of Saul. 2 Samuel tells the story of David. That's more or less the way that this is structured. I do want to note that if you were to look at the stories of Saul and David writ large, they are essentially stories of men that behave badly. That's really it. Now, it's not quite as dramatic and violent and ugly as Judges. Judges is a lot of drama. But Saul and David both behave badly. The big difference is that one redeems the bad behavior and the other does not. And so we can look at Saul as a man who behaves badly and yet does not seek redemption. And we can look at David as a man who behaved badly and yet seeks redemption. For me, the purpose of focusing on David this year is not because David is infallible. David is profoundly fallible. David does terrible things. But when those things happen, David repents and returns and seeks redemption. That's the whole story. It's not about being perfect. It's about when you aren't, because we all aren't many times, to have the faithfulness to return to God, to repent and return and seek redemption. That's the story of David. And that's why David is lifted up as such an icon in really both Judaism and Christianity, because he helps to redeem his bad behavior in a way that many, many other leaders do not. All right. That's good enough for the structure of First and Second Samuel. Follow-up questions or clarity? Yes. Who wrote First and Second Samuel? We certainly don't know a person, but we definitely know that it was written in and after the exile. There are certain things that are just kind of, they're aware of. Um, so you, you've probably heard me talk about this before. We have a sense about which gospel was written when based on what they seem to know about historic events. So we think Mark was written first and that Mark was written before 70 because Mark does not seem to know the temple was destroyed by the Romans, whereas Matthew and Luke and John do. And so we can kind of place books similarly. We see in First and Second Samuel a hindsight knowledge that addresses many of the issues that the Israelites had when they were in exile in Babylon. There is a priestly way of writing the stories of both of these kings, and most definitely Solomon. I haven't really mentioned Solomon because Saul and David are held up as imperfect, messy people. Solomon really is not held up as a messy person. He's not perfect, but Solomon is definitely, I mean, we've talked about the wisdom of Solomon. That's like a phrase that we use. Solomon is really held up as kind of the best sort of wise king. And so I focus on the messiness of Saul and David and not Solomon because it's just not the way the story is told. But if you put that entire arc together, it is purposeful. When you go to tell someone's story, you have to figure out what parts of their life you're going to tell. And so by selecting certain parts and not others, 
you're trying to point people in a certain direction because of that story. And the way that Saul, David, and Solomon's stories are told, it's very clear that they are attempting to direct the Jewish people toward a particular way of life that will not look like Saul, that will look like David on the one hand, repentance and redemption, and Solomon on the other hand, which is wisdom and faithful living. So this, the way the stories are told are so purposeful that it's not just trying to record history. It's trying to lead the Jewish people into a better way of life. And the reason that they would want to tell the story that way is so that they do not go into exile again. That's the whole point of all of these books, is don't make the mistake again. That's really the story over and over and over again. Any others? All right, let's go on to section two. Just a quick word on the difference between judges, prophets, and kings. There is a new period that is beginning here in 1 Samuel, even though Samuel is a judge. So Samuel is both the last judge and the first prophet. And so that's an important pivot to understand in your mind. Samuel does many judge-worthy things, and we're going to look at that particularly in chapter 7. But Samuel doesn't remain a judge. Samuel transitions from being the last judge to actually hearing God speak and then becoming the prophet that God uses to help bring about the kingdom, anointing both Saul and David as kings. And so this is a transitional section of our big story away from what was judges, no real monolithic leader, to what will become kingdom with a single monolithic leader over Israel once again, like Moses and Joshua had been before they came into the promised land and then during the Canaan conquest. I'm not entirely sure why I made that a second section. That's really all I had to say about it. Any questions? Okay, good. I just wanted to save time and make myself feel good. So now we're going to talk about Hannah and Eli. Then we're going to talk about Samuel. Let's start with Hannah and Eli. So turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1. I'm going to skip through these first verses. Here we go. There was a certain man from the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Elkanah. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his town to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah... He gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. So we'll pause there. We have been introduced to a man from Ephraim named Elkanah. So let's have just a geography moment. If you can imagine Israel, remember Israel is tall and skinny. Jerusalem is essentially central and a little east. Jerusalem, in our mind, is super important in Israel, right? The temple it is where the old city is. It's where all the good things are. 
Not yet. Jerusalem is not established as the capital of Israel until David brings the ark to Jerusalem. Jerusalem does not have a temple until Solomon builds the first one. So we are still at a period in time where Jerusalem is not the capital, there is no temple, and the ark has been parked in a little town about 13 miles northeast of Jerusalem called Shiloh. Shiloh is the place where this tribal period of time in Israel's history is the center of worship because that's the ark. What's the ark? It's the big gold box thing that holds the Ten Commandments and other stuff that you can't touch or you die. And so they carried that across the Jordan River, conquered the Promised Land, all the tribes got some stuff, and they put the ark in Shiloh. So Shiloh has become essentially the hub of Jewish worship life. There is a guy from Ephraim. Ephraim is kind of like the next town over from Shiloh. Elkanah is presented to us as a very faithful man. He's going up year by year to offer the sacrifices. He's doing his annual good diligence to go and offer a sacrifice to God at Shiloh. It may not be the big, dramatic, awesome temple that's going to be in Jerusalem, but Shiloh is still where God touches the earth. Remember the ark and the tabernacle? That is where God physically touches the earth. That is Shiloh. So Elkanah goes up, offers those sacrifices, and then brings the good stuff back to his two wives. He's got two wives. Penina has children. He gives Penina what she deserves. Hannah has no children, but he gives her a double portion. Why? Because he loves her, even though God has shut her womb. So as I noted earlier about the polygamy question, here we have a man who has two wives. It could just simply be said, he has two wives. But that's not all it says. Hannah, he gives a double portion because he loves her, even though the Lord shut her womb. So all of that is essentially code for, Hannah's really his number one wife, but she's not having kids and he has to have children. And so he has taken on a second wife, and he is apparently, literally saying, he treats her exactly as she should be treated. So he's treating her well. But he doesn't love her like he loves Hannah. For him, his second wife, Penina, is really a means to an end. It is actually about security. Because families at that point in time can't go without kids. Who's going to run the farm and who's going to protect them Who's when they get older and on and on and on. You've got to have children in order to invest yourself and to keep you secure in a world in which security is very difficult to find. And so what we have done right there in that one verse is we have given the caveat and the purpose behind why there are two wives, not one. Make sense? I do want you to note that Elkanah loves Hannah. Hannah has a real desire for a child. And so let's keep going with verse 9. Hannah herself rose and presented herself to the Lord. 
Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. This is in Shiloh. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly, and she made this vow. O Lord of hosts, if only you will look on the misery of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a male child, then I will set him before you as a Nazarite until the day of his death. He shall drink neither wine nor intoxicants, and no razor shall touch his head. In other words, he is not Episcopalian. Okay, <laughs> who else? Who else was a Nazarite? Remember from last week? Samson, thank you. Nazarite is a way of living. One can be committed as a Nazarite for a period of time. And so it could end up being almost like, <laughs> I don't know why it just popped in my head. It's like you go to rehab or something. It's not quite that. Um, but in a sense, it's like a spiritual journey or a spiritual quest. A parent could promise their child as a Nazarite, like Samson and like Samuel, or a person could, in a sense, of their own free will, go and commit their life as a Nazarite to try and move them closer to God in some very tangible way. In this moment, Hannah has gone up to the temple, right? Can you just imagine? There is no, you are not a good Jew if you have not had a child. That's just the way it is, which is why in the old countries, and this is not just Jewish, my friends, we all know this. I mean, even early 20th century, you are not purposeful unless you've got a child. I mean, how many times do people tell stories? I mean, it's an old trope where, you know, a mother will say to their daughter, when are you going to get married? When am I going to have grandchildren? I mean, hopefully we have moved away from that a bit, but not completely. Go back even just 100, and, 100 to 200 years, and that was a real thing. Go back a couple thousand years, and you were essentially worthless if you did not have a child, which is one of the reasons why when we see in the Gospels that Mary comes to see Jesus with his brothers, the word there is biological brother, not like brothers in Christ. No, it's like his actual brothers because Mary was a good Jewish woman. So she certainly had more children. And now the Catholics, leave me alone, because that's all right. You, you can believe Mary did not have any more children. That's your prerogative, but it's not true. And so <laughs> here we have Hannah who shows up because she has got to have a child. She is torn up about this. And she goes up to the temple at Shiloh and she prays to God and she makes him a deal. She makes him a deal that if he lets her have a child, she's going to dedicate him to God's service for his entire life. That's what the Nazarite comes in. So let's keep going. Verse 19. Verse 19, it says, Elkanah knew his wife, Hannah. That means they had sex. And the Lord remembered her. In due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She named him Samuel, for she said, I have asked him of the Lord. Jump to verse 24. When she had weaned him, she took him up with her to Shiloh, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah, a flower, and a skin of wine. She brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli, who is the high priest. And she said, O oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me the petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is given to the Lord. And she left him there for the Lord. And so we'll pause there.
Hannah's gotten what she so deeply desired, and she kept her into the bargain. She brought Samuel after he was weaned, gave him to Eli, who was... I, 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 some people refer to Eli as the high priest. Not really. We haven't gotten to the point yet where we have the official sort of high priest title. You might think of him as the chief priest, the senior priest, whatever you want to say. Eli was essentially in charge of the temple at that point in time. And so Hannah brought Samuel to Eli and essentially said, he is yours and will serve God his whole life. As we pivot to Eli, it's important to know that Eli was not just a priest, but he is considered a judge as well. Eh, I'm just going to go with priest, but you can at least put that in your pocket that he's technically called a judge in the Jewish tradition as well. Let me see. I'm going to pause the story of Samuel there. That's essentially the end of Hannah's story. We're going to get to Hannah just in a minute, but I want to say a word about Eli. Eli, as a priest, was meant to inherit the role of priest and to raise his sons up as priests as well. This is a Levitical tribe of Levi, a Levitical line of priesthood. The fact that they are telling the story this way is another reinforcement of this story having been written and finished either during or after the exile, because that's when the priestly tribe of Levi really took hold and basically continued all the way through the time of Jesus. You had this almost royal, well, I mean, quite literally royal passing from father to son of the role of priest. You couldn't go discern priesthood and get ordained and serve as a priest. It didn't work that way. If you were not born into the right family, you are not a priest. Eli's story is told this way, and it's told very interestingly. We find out that Eli's sons are scoundrels. You know, we don't use that word enough. I'm going to start saying scoundrel more this week. Um, what a great word that is. I mean, you know immediately what that means, right? I mean, and I see the like slimy grease ball kind of look in my head. I mean, it's great. And so Eli's sons are scoundrels. They are serving as priests, but they are bad priests. So you might say, how in the world are they serving as priests if they're scoundrels? Well, it's because of what I just said. They're Eli's sons. So Eli is a good guy. He's doing it right, but his sons are really crappy. And so he, they get in trouble and there's a whole thing that happens with his sons. We're not gonna really handle his sons. I just want to note that Eli's sons are a total disappointment. I mean, they are just tragic. So when Hannah brings Samuel to Eli, there is, in a sense, this acceptance of Samuel as a do-over for his really crummy sons. And so Eli takes Samuel in as almost like his adopted son and raises him up in the temple, whatever, in the temple, to become a priest as well. This is unusual. It is not typically the way this works. But Samuel has kind of slid in because Eli's sons suck. Okay. <laughs> Eli still sees Samuel's parents, right? Samuel's parents did not disappear. They are still living over there in Ephraim. 
and they're still coming to the temple to make offerings because they're good people. And so jump to chapter 2, verse 18. Chapter 2, verse 18. So Samuel's been in the temple with Eli for a bit, and we get this lovely little note that finishes up Elkanah and Hannah's story. Chapter 2, verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. His mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord repay you with children by this woman for the gift that she made to the Lord. And then they would return to their home. And the Lord took note of Hannah. She conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. I love this little section for many reasons. First, Samuel was ministering in the Lord. So he's doing well. I mean, he's doing the thing that he was sort of born to do. His mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year. Is that not the sweetest? I love that little line because he's growing up. And so here his mother, who can't raise him, is making him clothes in the next size up. I mean, any parent knows you rotate clothes, right? I mean, clothes outgrow and you go get new clothes that are next size bigger. So here she is probably working on some clothes during the year. And every year when they go up for the sacrifice brings him the next size up. This is sweet. I mean, I just, I love this. She may have even smocked a few things when he was younger, you know. Then not only is this just very sweet here, but Hannah goes on to have more kids. So at first we hear this story as if Hannah has prayed to be remembered to have children, to really be validated as a good Jewish person. She's doing everything she can, but she wasn't able to have kids. And so here God blesses her with a child finally, and she gives him away. And you might think, wait a minute. She wanted so badly to have children, and then she just gave the child away. Well, here we get this little kind of parenthetical moment where Hannah gets to have more kids. And so as a Jewish reader, this is a really beautiful story. I mean, it might feel weird to us that you would give your child over to serve in the temple, but to see that Hannah and really Elkanah's faithfulness all the way to the point where she gets pregnant with Samuel, then her continued faithfulness in giving Samuel over, then her continued faithfulness in maintaining that really good relationship with Samuel has blossomed into her having all of these other children. I mean, Penina's out. Sorry, Penina. Um, (laughs) Hannah has really kind of fulfilled this really beautiful role together with Elkanah. And we don't really, that's all we get of their story. And it really just pivots right to Samuel, but I thought that was worth noting. So Samuel grows up serving Shiloh, serving in Shiloh with Eli. The Lord then begins to speak to Samuel. And now we have this transition from Eli, who had been this faithful priest with really terrible sons, who has now raised essentially an adopted son to take over his mantle. And now God is speaking again. This is really important. God, as the story is told, God speaks and then God does not. There are periods of lots of God talking and then periods of God is never talking. Typically, whenever God 
begins to speak again, something new is happening. We see that repeated over and over again in the Old Testament. We see that specifically in the person of John the Baptist. So we get this big, long gap. So we have God talking to lots of people. God's talking to Adam and Eve and talking to Noah and talking to a bunch of other people, including Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And then all of the Israelites go to Egypt and God is silent for 400 years. Then the word of God came and we hear Moses. Then you do all of this stuff and God's talking and not talking and talking and not talking. And then at the end of the Old Testament, there is this 400 year period of silence again. And then God speaks. And what do we hear? To John the Baptist. And so there are these two big gaps of silence that indicate the importance of when God speaks again. This moment here in chapter three is not quite the dramatic 400 years of silence, but we can understand the period of the judges as kind of being a period where there was a ton of messiness and God was not speaking consistently. God was certainly not speaking consistently to a single person. And so there is a way that the story is told that now God's back speaking specifically to Samuel. So let's look at chapter three. This is a story you know. I'm going to read quite a few verses because it's just worthy. When we talk about a story from the Bible that should be known to us and can very much impact our lives, these next, what, 20 verses is one of those moments that I want you to know well. Like you should know this story cold. Okay, here we go. Chapter three. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were not widespread. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his room. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, Samuel. And he said, here I am, and ran to Eli. And he said, here I am, for you called me. But Eli said, I did not call you. Lie down again. So Samuel went and lay down. The Lord called again, Samuel. Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But Eli said, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel again a third time, and he got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now the Lord came and stood there, calling as before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. Then the Lord said to Samuel, see, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make both ears of anyone who hears of it tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be expiated by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay there 
until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. Samuel was afraid to tell the vision of Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. He said, here I am. Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told Eli everything and hid nothing from him. Then Eli said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And we'll stop there. There is so much that we could do with those verses. We can go at this from a dozen different angles that is so very powerful. Let's start at just the general action of the story. Samuel is young, and Samuel thinks that he's hearing this voice call his name. Well, of course it's Eli. Eli's sleeping over there, and Samuel's over here, and he hears this voice call his name. And so he goes over to Eli. Samuel did not yet know the Lord. How powerful. Samuel has been doing all of this stuff in the temple at Shiloh day in and day out. I mean, at this point, we can say for years Samuel has been serving in the temple, and yet what God wanted to do with his life was not yet clear until a point at which God starts to call. But Samuel doesn't understand what is happening. It is Eli who has to say to Samuel, I think God's trying to get your attention, so go back. And when you hear it again, respond, your servant is listening. What an incredible model for us in our own faith life. I say all the time, you cannot be Christian by yourself. It is not a good idea. This is a beautiful example of why that is the case. We on our own almost certainly will not understand what God is trying to do for us or in us or through us. It's when we are in community, especially when we have mentors among us who can help us to see that the call, that nudge, that annoying like flick of the ear, that actually is God trying to get our attention. And then we have people around us who can say, why don't you go and listen? Why don't you go and acknowledge that you will listen to what God is saying to you and maybe even act on what God is saying? So in that sense, Samuel's future, his entire purpose comes through Eli's faithfulness to mentor him. And then what an interesting moment of faithfulness on Eli's part. So Eli's sons are terrible. Eli has to be completely brokenhearted that his sons will not inherit what he finds so important. And here is this boy of Samuel who comes to him, not of his own blood, but of his own spirit. And Eli gets a chance not only to acknowledge that God can do whatever to his own family line, can punish his sons. By the way, his sons will die soon, but he can redeem his sons by being faithful to Samuel. It is a very unusual kind of relationship at this period of time. We might see this and think, sure, you'd be nice to someone else's kid. It's not exactly the way that kind of inheritance and mantle sharing or baton passing really worked back then. You really watched out for your own. And here Eli is so generous in his brokenness that he will lose his own sons. He finds redemption and healing by being able to pass along to Samuel. 
All right. Any questions or thoughts on that? Yes. About how old was Samuel? About how old was Samuel? We have no indication. Um, it says years twice. So, you know, if he was three when Hannah weaned him, which is kind of old, um, but if he was three, then it was years, and then it was years again. I've always kind of pictured Samuel as being sort of tweeny, maybe early teen. Um, I think the, this story seems to imply he is not an adult. So I think 13-ish, maybe. Um, that, that age, it would make sense for them to tell the story that way, because in the Jewish tradition, what happens at 13? Right, bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah. It is the moment when you assume the responsibility for your own faith life. You know, we do that at confirmation. That's why we invite people. That's why we have no issue with infant baptism is because confirmation is that moment when the community affirms that a child is old enough to make a mature decision and then the young person says yes with the responsibility and accountability of their own faith life. I kind of slot Samuel into that same age where essentially they're old enough to understand what God is beginning to do in their life, but they're not so old that they've missed anything. That being said, it doesn't really make it clear in the text. Any other questions or thoughts? Yeah. Yes, good question. So the question is, in the periods of silence I referenced before, are there records of false prophets, which is a great term? Um, I would say definitely in the sort of silent period between the end of the prophets in the Old Testament and John the Baptist coming on the scene. And I should say, it isn't actually John the Baptist. It is Elizabeth and Mary. They're the ones who hear God speak, and then they both get pregnant in weird ways. And then it's their sons, John and Jesus, that then do the stuff. So that period of silence, there's plenty of stuff written about it. So I would call the stuff written about it in, falls in two categories. The first category is just general historic record. There are lots and lots and lots of bits and stories told that would be considered just general Jewish history, like general Israeli history. In fact, if we think about the period of the kings, essentially the kingdom period ends around the sixth century BCE. And I should say fresh in a new year. I use the terms BCE and CE instead of BC and AD. It simply means before the common era and the common era. So 6th century BC or BCE, that's when the kingdom period ends. It's not until 400 years later in the 2nd century BCE that Israel gets a king again. So of course we certainly know when Jesus is born, there's a king, Herod's there. So that picks up again about 200 years before Jesus is born. So 600 years before Jesus, the kingdom period we're gonna be talking about here pre-exile ends. Then it's exile and it's rebuilding the temple and it's 
all kinds of, you know, some prophets and whatever. And then you get a new kingdom period with the rebuilding and the expansion of the second temple that was post-exile. And then, of course, those are the kings that Jesus is under, Herod and the others. There is also a category of writing in that 400 years before Jesus is born that we would call the Apocrypha. So we've talked about this a little bit in the past. The oldest set of books that would constitute a Christian Bible includes a bunch of books that slot between the end of the prophetic period and the Gospels. Those 400 years are books that have now been classified as the Apocrypha because the Protestant reformers didn't like them. Martin Luther and others threw them out. They said they're not authoritative. Anglicans, who were reforming at the same time but differently, said, you know, they're not, they may not be as authoritative as the Old Testament books, but they still have some authority, so we're going to hold them and we're going to make like a middle section called the Apocrypha. And so if you buy any study Bible, it should have the Old Testament, the Apocrypha, and the New Testament. And so the Apocrypha has really cool stories. Um, it's mostly Jewish history stuff, although you do get things like Bell and the Dragon. And I mean, how great does that sound? So if you've not read some of the Apocrypha, it's easy to do. You can find it around. There are plenty of other books that are not part of the Apocrypha that is called the Pseudepigrapha. Great word. And so that is where you could find a bit more information about the period before Jesus is born. There are many moments, like you get Maccabees in there. That's the story that gives us Hanukkah. Um, so there are a number of ways in which that section of writings is still important, even if we would say it's not as authoritative as the others. Good. Any other questions? All right, last two minutes. We are now going to pivot to Samuel. And we'll finish Samuel next week, but let's just start with Samuel this week. Eli dies. Samuel then becomes that chief priest. Now, there are a series of problems. If you look at chapters five, six, you know, 4, 5, 6, there are just a bunch of problems back and forth with the Philistines and with other people. And the summary is that the Israelites begin to intermarry and worship other gods, and they start to do all the same kind of stuff that they were doing in the book of Judges. And they go back and forth over the course of about 20 years. That's what those three chapters cover. And if you want to read it, it's great. It's just kind of a lot of, you know, who steals what from the other. But if we jump to chapter 7, we get the moment when Samuel goes from being the nice chief priest at Shiloh to essentially claiming his role as the last judge of Israel before he pivots to being the prophet. So let's look at chapter 7, verse 3. We're going to read a few verses, and then we'll stop for the day. Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Astartes from among you. Direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So Israel put away the Baals and the Astartes, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mitzpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mitzpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord. They fasted that day and said, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mitzpah. 
I'm going to jump here just to say verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzpah and Jashana and named it Ebenezer. For he said, thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. The hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. We'll stop there. There are a couple things I want to point out here. First, the Israelites had started worshiping the Canaanite gods, Baal and Astartes. That's essentially just their gods. It's no big deal to know what they are. Samuel says, you've got to get it together and you've got to stop doing all this Canaanite God worship stuff and come back to Yahweh. And so they put away their gods, which could quite literally mean they put away statues and idols of those gods, not just put away in their hearts, but actually got rid of the stuff that would have been in their homes and even in their little towns. Then we get this mention of mitzvah. Mitzvah is repeated many times in this chapter. Mitzvah is the place, if we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 31, Mitzpah is the place where Joshua, I'm sorry, where Jacob and Laban make peace. If you remember back, Jacob and Laban, they are not happy with each other. I don't know if you all remember, Jacob went over and he wanted to marry Laban's daughter, but Laban gave him Leah, not Rachel, and all that sort of stuff. And they got mad at each other and they started fighting and Jacob fled and they kind of came out to this place in the middle called Mitzpah and they made peace. And they established what is a mitzvah, which is essentially a tower of stones, to represent their peace agreement. Now, this is hundreds and hundreds of years later, but Samuel goes to mitzvah again and establishes, reestablishes a peace there between Israel and the Philistines. But this time, the Philistines don't have to agree because God is going to back up Samuel's agreement for peace and protect the Israelites from the Philistines all of Samuel's life. That is not true, but it's the way they tell the story. So over the next few weeks, we're going to find out that the Philistines do actually kind of attack Israel and cause them trouble, and that's ultimately what does Saul in, but David comes to the rescue and unifies Israel under his kingship. And that's all we got, friends. If you've got questions, let me know. I'll see you next week. Bye.